through song, be encouraged by your word. We praise you for who you are and what you have done in our lives. I'm reminded of that gospel truth, your son dying on the cross to pay the price for our sin so that we place our trust and faith in you, thinking of the risen Christ, that we can have eternity with you and our lives will be different. Pray for the students this morning and the faculty here. Pray for the country. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is uh, even a bit of a more timely message than I would have thought. I think I went to bed about 10.30 last night, kind of watching the election. You might have been watching it. Your parents probably were if you were not. And I remember kind of saying, okay, it looks like it's going to go to one party. You know, I was kind of doing the math on the votes, and I could see, okay, it doesn't look good. I'm just going to go to bed. Woke up this morning, got my truck, headed here, turned on the Fox News station, and they said nothing about the election last night for about 10 minutes. I thought, okay, I think I have my answer here. At least I know it's maybe not complete, and but it's pretty close. And I thought, oh, I, and I looked at a little later this morning, getting texts from a lot of my friends that are just sort of in a panic, like, well, we really, this thing, what's happened, what's going on? Um, so when you look at your notes this morning, I've got three points I'm going to hit on, and I've got little blank spaces to kind of keep you, keep you going, a little trick there, kind of keep you going, take some notes. But I want to mention just even the title, why that's picked. It says, Critical Convictions for a COVID Crazy World. So I picked the word critical for a good reason. These are three principles. These are three convictions. Really super important. Really important. And actually, there's a couple more that we don't have time for that come out of Ecclesiastes, but I just want to focus on these three this morning. Convictions. The word conviction. If you look it up in the dictionary, you'll see that it's you're convinced of something. It's, it's a belief set you have. It's something that you say, hey, that person's got convictions, and so they don't need a lot of convincing. They're based upon certain principles. They're going to they're gonna do something certain. Just a simple sports illustration is Tom Osborne, when he's coaching the Huskers in 1983 and had a bowl game against Clemson, and this was back before the playoff system. They came to the last play of the game, and they, had, they could either kick an extra point, tie Clemson, probably that would assure Nebraska we would tie or perhaps get the national championship. Or his other choice was go for two, which is riskier than just an extra point. But to go for two would mean you're going for the win, not just for the tie, not just playing it safe, not just trying to leave it up to the people who vote in the polls. Tom Osborne's decision was go for two. That failed, or it would have been his first national championship title. Now, afterwards, everybody was like, wow, like, why didn't you play it safe? And, like, was that this really hard decision? And Coach Osborne just said, no, it was really easy. I already was convinced of what I was going to do way before that, and so it wasn't even hardly anything I had to think about. Now, that's conviction. That's somebody who's convinced of something. And so this morning, we're going to talk about some biblical convictions that I hope you'll see that you can be convinced of as a believer. 
And then the rest of that title is this, we're in this COVID crazy world, 2020 going in now, 2021. And even this morning waking up, you know, it's just like this isn't ending yet. There's a little light at the end of the tunnel, but yet it really is this moment where it's really tough. So this morning is a little bit of a, what I would call a shepherding sermon or talk, where a shepherd kind of, an under-shepherd's kind of trying to help guide a little bit, or I thought about it this way, it's like a coach's talk after maybe a big loss. So I've got a story to, to start with, and then I'll kind of end with this to kind of cap it off, and I hope it will help you and maybe make a little sense to you this way. So in this gym, I had the opportunity a number of years ago to coach a group of boys. I wasn't expecting to be a varsity head coach, but uh, wound up doing it for four years. Uh, it's the only time I think we've won the Goldenrod uh, Championship one of those years. Uh, some of you know Drew Schreiber. He was on that team. My son was on that team. A group of really talented players. And then I stepped out after the fourth year and didn't coach. And in that meantime, the next year, there was a need for, again, a boys coach because the current coach had just done one year also a need for a girls coach, and I was just really missing coaching and just being around students and the discipleship stuff you can do with students. And so the school had asked me, would I come back and would I coach? And I said, sure. I said, what do you need? And they said, well, you can come back and do boys or, you know, girls, whatever you want to do. And I said, look, let me just, let me go ahead and I'll, I'll go with the girls. I've been an assistant for girls before. Makes no difference to me whether it's boys or girls, but I think you're going to have a hard time getting a boys coach. Girls hadn't won a game, I think, for almost two years. So they were really not very good. But that was not the reason I wanted to coach. In fact, one of the boys coaches at Greeley, when I saw him a few weeks later, he said, hey, I heard you were coming back, but you're going to like, you're gonna coach the girls? Like, why? Like, didn't you have a choice to coach the boys? And he was just really puzzled. He's like, I don't get it. He goes, I would never do that. And what I told him was, it's not just about the scoreboard, there's something that's more important than that. And it, to me, I wanted to help the school. It made no difference to me because it wasn't just about winning. But, but he said, well, Gordon, you know, they're not very good, right? And I said, well, yeah, of course I know that. So hadn't won a game for a couple of years. And so what I knew going into it, that it'd probably be a year and a half before we won the first game. I knew it'd probably be four to five years before we'd actually have a winning season. And then we'd begin to build from that, which is pretty much what happened. But the first year in this gym, we played Palmer. It's a little bit of a rivalry game. Final score, 84, I think it was 84 to 12. That's a clobbering. I mean, that's just like getting a real beat down. But the girls I had out, in fact, one of the girls had never played basketball in her life. And I had kind of talked her into coming out because she could get two other girls to come out. So therefore, we could have 10 girls total so that we could actually kind of scrimmage five against five. So that girl I actually started, because I could have started anybody, because nobody was really that good, but she just had never played a game, and she couldn't catch a ball, and it was just like, well, might as well start her, because we don't even have a team if she doesn't recruit those other two girls and come out. So it was one of those moments where it was just like really, uh, it was really hard, you know. And so when, so when your coaches are in the locker room after the game, and they're kind of looking at you, and they're going, wow, your heads are down, there's some depression, nobody's very happy, what do you say? What's the advice? And so I feel a little bit like that even today as we've gone through 2020, looking at 2021, where do we go? Where do we go for advice? 
where do we go to get perspective on this? And so that's why I wanted to share out of Ecclesiastes. Like, this is the relevant book for today. I mean, there's others for sure. In fact, we're going to launch into a series in Jonah next week, and it's going to be really, really good. But here's statistics you already probably have heard or know. Uh, a third of Americans are depressed at some level. 50% of adults say they have a problem with their mental health. And what might be disturbing is the age group that some of you are close to, age 18 to 44-year-olds, in this last year, 25% or one in four say they've seriously considered suicide because life is just so uncertain, so depressing, so bleak that they just said, hey, there's just no way out of this thing. So the two things I hope you get today, one is strength. So hopefully these biblical convictions just kind of help give you strength you need for coming in you know this year and the second thing is to just convince you to be this type of christian we're going to talk about so that you have a compelling faith so when people see you walk around not with your head down not with this depressed disillusion i don't know what to make of this but they see that hey you've got a rock solid foundation they're going to ask you how come why is that that's your opportunity to share the gospel as people look at your life and say there's something that is different here. So this is a real opportunity. Now, just last week I talked to Coach Ron Brown. Some of you know he's an assistant coach at Nebraska. What's interesting to me is he's coached a lot of years at Nebraska. I think now it's 25 years. I think it's four years at Liberty University. And we talked about his ministry that he has to coaches and players. His comment was in 2020, there was more opportunity than ever to share the gospel and disciple players and coaches than his entire career. I mean, that's the moment we're in. There's actually this great opportunity for you as well, where we've got people that are asking, what do I do? What's going on? It's interesting, Ecclesiastes, one of the themes you see consistently is there's nothing new under the sun. And the idea of under the sun is like what's going on on the earth but there's nothing new, and Solomon says that. And that's true, but the realities we face are a little different. So I just turned 64, and so I'm a little bit of a child of the 1960s. So I kind of grew up around protests in the 60s, long hair, Beatles music, which we thought was so bad, and actually later the, the lyrics weren't so good. But it was a time when everybody thought the whole world's kind of going falling apart. And I got to tell you, this last year in 2020, the realities have been even far worse than anybody could probably have imagined. So what do we know about this book of Ecclesiastes? So you can see in your notes, I've got a little image of an old guy there who's getting ready to preach. Solomon's an old man. He's near the end of his life, and he's going to give us some wisdom. So if you want to turn to your Bibles or just at least make a note of this passage, 1 Kings 4.29 is where I want to take you this morning. Just to start, 1 Kings 4.29, because this kind of sets up, because, because we're not in a series, I've got to give you a little bit of context, because we're just kind of dropping in for one message. So I want you to kind of understand who, who's involved here in Ecclesiastes. 1 Kings 4.29 says, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth 
of mine like the sand on the seashore. So what is being said here is that this wisdom is, is unmeasurable. You can't measure it. Uh, it's uncountable. So it's the wisest of the wise, and it's the best advice we've got. Now, if you want to turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we'll look just to begin with at verse 1. We'll be on our way eventually to chapter 9, but we need to set this up a little bit. Ecclesiastes 1.1 says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So again, this is Solomon, son of David. And then the words, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So this is the idea of Ecclesiastes. The word is the idea of the gathering of God's people. You hear the man of God is going to preach a message, and he's going to give some a life message of wisdom, divine wisdom. And it's not only the things that are positive in this journey that Solomon learned, but it's also there are times that Solomon didn't listen to to it, and he learned these lessons through the life of hard knocks. Can you relate to that? I mean, I got to say, every year I coached, there was a degree of players. Some players just didn't learn unless it's just hard knocks. Others it was a little easier. But it's important to understand that when we look here at Ecclesiastes, this is the unvarnished truth. This is absolutely the way it is. Uh, it's not like a Hallmark movie or the Hallmark Channel, which, by the way. If you hadn't heard in 2020, one of the highest, one of the programs and channels that went up in ratings was the Hallmark Channel and movies. Why? During such a depressing time, people are like, I, I want to know that things can work out. I mean, that's every Hallmark movie, right? The guy gets the girl and there's a happy ending at the end. But we're not in that time. So I want to help you think this through. Here's the outline if you want to put this in your notes. This is really helpful. So if you look, if you take chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes and you go all the way to the end of chapter 8, this is Solomon, this outline. This is Solomon who's exploring, he's discovering. And what's he discovering and exploring? Well, he's, what he's finding is life is, it's inadequate. It's inconsistent. It's this experiment in Solomon's life and it's the possessions he has. It's the experiences he's gone through. And we're going to see that none of it cuts it. It just doesn't cut it. In fact, when you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, it's a really blunt statement. It just says, vanities of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The word vanity or vain is used 40, time, 40 times in Ecclesiastes. And every time there's a, a cycle of life lessons or, or experience from Solomon, it ends with this vanity of vanities. Like, this, this isn't just going anywhere. This is just really hard. Um, the Hebrew word, habel, and this is the idea here um, of vanity. It means a vapor, fleeting. It can mean futility or life's futile, but it really has more of this idea that life's like a vapor. So it's kind of like if I had a candle up here, and the flame was going up, and if I were to extinguish the wick and just kind of take it out, that flame, the smoke would kind of go up like a vapor. This is more the idea of what life is like. It's like a vapor. It's not here very long, and it's gone. It's not something that's manageable or you can control. 
In fact, if you try to eat smoke, it's not satisfying. So that's kind of the picture here is life is elusive. Life is elusive. Now, even non-believers get this and understand this. And most non-believers would just see life's this crazy kind of roller coaster. They don't know what, how to make sense of this. I found it interesting. Again, I'm a child of the night, going through the 1960s. I like the Beatles, but oddly enough, I also like a guy named Frank Sinatra. So Frank was, you know, kind of one of those soloists. And you might have grandparents that say, oh, yeah, I remember Frank Sinatra. Well, in 1963, there was a song written called That's Life. The next year, Frank Sinatra recorded That's Life, became one of the best-selling songs ever, and it was about life. It was almost a parallel of a lot of the things that we're trying to see here in Ecclesiastes. What was interesting, if you look at Wikipedia, there are 24, at least 24 different recording artists, artists that have recorded that over the years. And it's appeared in at least six different movies. In fact, the most recent movie, which I don't recommend, is The Joker. Now, I'm a fan of the Batman movies. The Joker is not a great movie, the one that came out in 2019. And a lot of people probably saw actually in 2020. Because it's a movie about a depressed person, a mentally ill person. And it's all about how there's this roller coaster life and what's life all about. And uh, so I don't recommend it. But they picked this song specifically now when you look at wikipedia it's interesting that they say this is a positive song and i'm kind of looking at it going not for the believer but for the world they have nothing other than just this roller coaster in fact here's how this song ends here are the lyrics it says that's life i can't deny it many times i thought about cutting out that's giving up or killing yourself but my heart won't buy it but there's nothing shaking come this here july I'm going to roll myself up in a ball and die. And then the Sinatra added, my, my. And I'm kind of looking at those lyrics, and I'm going, positive? But again, the world, it's that way for much of the world. Drop down in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 to verses 12 and 13. Let's take a look at that. 12 and 13 says, I, the preacher, this is Solomon, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, I applied my heart to seek, to search out wisdom, all that is done under the sun. If you're taking notes, this is Solomon's goal. This is his goal to kind of figure out life, to, to really figure it all out. And then I want you to go over to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and we're going to get a picture of just what this is that Solomon's talking about, and we're going to get these 1 through 11. It's really going to help set this up. It says, I said in my heart, come on now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself, but behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and a pleasure, what use is it? I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under the heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them, all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds, flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. 
I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of the kings and the provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines to the light of the sons of man. So I became great. I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hand had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So the bottom line here is life is inadequate to fulfill the desires of your heart. Uh, it's not going to sustain it, and that is life under the sun. Now, a lot of you have been very fortunate to grow up in Christian homes. You're in a Christian school. Some of you know my testimony was not that. I didn't become a Christian until college. So as a non-believer in a public school in Lincoln, not that I lived to this extreme that Solomon did, but as an athlete who had a scholarship and had lots of friends, all I, I can relate to this because it was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it all. Why not? And I can relate to exactly what Solomon says because when I got to the end of myself, I was like, is this all there is? In fact, as a freshman in college, that's the point that my life intersected with the gospel because I was looking around and friends were saying, how come you're not happy? How come you're not content? They said, heaven's sakes, you got a football scholarship, you're at a popular school, you got a nice girlfriend, you got a lot of friends, and I was like, is this it? Is this all there is? And that began me seeking God, but not understanding that actually God was seeking me. And it was God that put that desire in my heart to begin to, to know Him. If you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 13, it says this. It says, life is an unhappy business. So despite everything, here's the deal. Life here is not heaven. And if you're a good coach... I know we got some coaches in here. One of the things you never want to do is set your team up for a game, for a season or anything by saying, hey, this is going to be an easy game tonight. Oh, it's going to be an easy season. In fact, you're going to do just the opposite. You're going to try to prepare them because you don't want to say to your team, we got an easy game tonight. And then you get in the first quarter of, say, a basketball game and you're down by 10 after like two minutes, right? Because the players are looking at you at the coach like, uh, I, what happened? I didn't even think that was a possibility. So you want your players to know that life's just not going to be smooth. There's going to be, life's going to have this up and down, this roller coaster, and to expect that this is not heaven on earth. So you've got to get that, understand that. In fact, in Ecclesiastes 1.15, it says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. Here's the truth on life, if you're taking notes and you just want a few words to jot down that might be helpful later. Here's the truth. You cannot avoid the bad. You can't avoid the bad. And hang on to the good because life is a vapor, right? You cannot change what God has determined. You can fight it, but you can't change it. That's the reality under the sun that Solomon is trying to get at. And what we want to take a look at now, so we had the chapters 1 to 8, so that was Solomon's 
life, the possessions, his, his experiences. Now we're going to get the conclusion, his conclusion, beginning in chapter 9 through 12, where we're going to see these foundational truths that in this confusing world, what are some things that you can anchor, anchor your life in? What are these things you can anchor your life in, these truths? So really, it's what I'm trying to say this morning, part of this is say, I want to help you focus maybe on what matters and maybe let go of maybe some release some things that are not quite as important. So critical convictions for a COVID crazy world, number one. And you can see I've got that point on your outline, and it's I must live as a Christian like I am in the hand. So the word there is hand, the hand of God. I must live as a Christian like I am in the hand of God. Now we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. So if you go move over to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 1, it says this, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise, so in other words, those who believe in God and are righteous and those who are not believers, their deeds are in the hand of God. So either way, you're in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. So here's another bottom line, which is the hand of God is intimate. It's also an expression of that his sovereignty and that he's in control. So what are just a, I'll give you a couple of verses to kind of flesh out this idea of being in the hand of God. Proverbs 21.1. Proverbs 21.1 says this. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of God. He turns it wherever he will. Again, expression, God's hand. He's in control. He's sovereign. Then Deuteronomy chapter 33.3. So Deuteronomy 33.3 says this. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand so they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. And again, if you're taking notes, you might want to write this, this sentence down. Maybe I'll give it, yeah, maybe two thoughts. You don't control or predict the future, what's coming. If you're right in Christ, if you're righteous in Christ, what you can figure is that you can be governed by his word. He's going to, you're going to be in the hand of God. So this should be an anchor for your soul. In fact, write down Romans 8.28. I think this is really helpful. It says, And we know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. So, I'm going to give you this, this story. There was a speaker we had here probably seven or eight good years ago. His name is David Gibson. He's from Minneapolis, and he's an evangelist, a missionary. He's probably one of those guys that I've been around, like I've not met maybe anybody like him. Uh, Mr. James knows, knows him well. I mean, he's just witnessing to everybody. And this is just kind of an example of being in the hand of God, the sovereign hand of God, that God knows what we need to say, what we need to be, and even how to live a compelling Christian life. 
So we were in Minnesota. We were on one of the trips that you'll be taking this spring. We had a group of seniors. It was kind of a worldview trip. And kind of the last day out, we did a little thing on the slopes with the snow, the sledding and snowboarding. And one of the students hurt their knee. And so we had a medic that showed up. And the medic was like, okay, I'm here taking care of things. And so I was just kind of sitting there talking to the medic and asked him where he's from. And he said, well, I'm from Adina. And I said, oh, I've got a good friend that lives over there, but, you know, Adina's like this huge place, you know, but, you know, I'm always thinking, well, I know everybody, which I really don't, but I'm thinking, hey, you might know a friend of mine. He's at a church called Grace in Adina. His name's Dave Gibson. I'm sure you don't know him, right? And he goes, I sure do. I said, really? And I'm thinking, well, Dave is a guy that witnesses to everybody, so, you know, Adina's a big town, but he probably gets around. And the medic said, let me tell you a story. He said, two years ago, he said, you know, your friend David Gibson had a massive heart attack, right? And I said, oh, yeah, I'm glad the Lord was gracious and, you know, he was okay. And he said, well, I was one of the paramedics that went into his house, threw him on a gurney, and hauled him back out and took him in the ambulance to the hospital. And I said, really? What was, what was that like? And he said, well, here's what happened. He said he was witnessing to me as I was wheeling him out of the house. So the guy's having the massive heart attack, and I'm just kind of going, what is the deal? And he's going through the whole gospel on the way to the ambulance. And my friend Dave Gibson actually prayed and led him to the Lord in the ambulance. And this guy became a Christian. And I'm like, this is a crazy thing that I'm here on this slope. I bumped into you. And he said, yeah. And he says, and, and I love the Lord. And I said, so obviously it's the gospel you heard that you responded to. And he said, yeah, but it was also the fact that you know, I've been a medic for a long time, and I've been there at the end when people's lives are over or getting close to over, but I was just so compelling that this was obviously, and again, he didn't use these words, but I'd use these words. What I think he saw is, here's a guy that really trusts and believes he's in the hand of God, right? And so when you really believe that and are convinced of that, then you're not going out on the gurney going, uh-oh, this is it for me. Instead, my friend was going, who can I witness to? Who could I bring to heaven with me? One more person. Anyway, I just actually thought of that story on the way here this morning. I thought, boy, that's, that's the perfect illustration of how living a compelling Christian life can impact others. And of course, it's both, right? It's not one or the other. It's both living that compelling Christian life and it's also sharing the gospel. So you've got to, you've got to speak and tell the gospel just like my friend David did. So now we go to number two. Number two are these critical convictions. Number two is I must live life like I'm going to lose it. So the word is lose. So I must live life like I'm going to lose it. So I want to go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verses 2 and 3 say this. It is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked to the good and the evil, to the clean and unclean, to him who sacrifices and who, him who does not sacrifice, as the good one, so is the sinner, and he who swears as if who is, shuns an oath. This is an evil, and all this done under the sun, that the same event happens to all of us. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness in their hearts while they live, and after that, they go to the dead. This is just a true fact, right? We're all going to lose our life. Everybody in this room, we simply don't know when. And then 
drop down to verse 12. Let's look at verse 12, Ecclesiastes 9.12. And it says, For a man does not know his time, like the fish that are taken in an evil net, and like the birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So again, it's this idea that you don't know when, and actually this, this idea of death being evil, it's not so much moral type evil as much as the idea of evil in the idea that it's painful, right? And so some of you have lost friends or family members in 2020, either to COVID or maybe something else. So death is painful. There is suffering. And that's kind of what he's saying here. But we need to also look at life and realize that because we're going to lose it, how do we view life? How we, what perspective are we going to have? So my favorite quote that I like to share a lot of times is from the missionary Jim Elliott. And some of you know the story that Jim Elliott was a missionary, the Anka Indians. He was martyred, lost his life, going in the mission field to share with them, and the Indians actually killed him, the other missionaries who were with him. And he was a young man. He just graduated fairly recently from Wheaton. But he was determined to go to the mission field, to go to a place that people had not heard the gospel. And this is one of my favorite quotes from Jim Elliott. It says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Wow, it just really says that good when you have that perspective that you know you're going to lose life. So what are, you, what are you hanging on to? Let me read that one more time because it's just so good. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Back to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, now verse 14. The wise man has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same events happens to all of them. So again, and you see in verse 3 that this is this evil, but again, it's not so much the moral as it's just it brings terrible pain. And then um, I want to give you a quote here. This is from a David, David Gibson, a different David Gibson, actually, who wrote a book called Living Life Backward. And it's sort of a commentary on Ecclesiastes. But here's what David Gibson says in this book. He says, we, and that's all of us in this room, tend to live life as if the one thing that we know, the one thing that's certain, which is death, will never come. And if the many things that are uncertain are certain. Boy, isn't that right? We tend not to want to think about there's a day that we will not be here. We tend to just go on with life and not think about those things. Uh, and here's a consequence of that. The way we live life a lot of times is we don't see life as a gift. We take things for granted. And there's the moments that we know it's a gift, and then we kind of have a way of losing perspective. So there was probably five or six years ago, I remember I was over in the admin building, and I had a, a cancer screening, and it was nothing that, you know, I thought it was probably going to be okay, uh, but they did a biopsy, and they said, well, we're going to call you, and, and they said, and we'll let you know if it's cancerous or not cancerous, and so I was in a meeting in the admin building, and when I looked at my cell phone, I could see that number. I knew it was the doctor's number. So even though I thought, well, I think I know the outcome here, and I, I don't think it's cancerous, I just remember thinking my heartbeat just kind of went up. I could even feel my heart go up like, oh, oh, I'm getting ready to talk to a doctor and find out, do I have cancer or do I not have cancer? And so it was like, okay, I don't. 
good. I feel good. I don't have it right now. So there's that moment that I'm like, wow, I've got more life. I feel like this is a gift. But what happens a lot of times is we go two or three weeks or months later and we kind of again begin to take it for granted that things that we think are certain are not uncertain. But we need to see life as a gift. And when we see it that way, we have a greater appreciation. Here's the last one, conviction. Critical conviction for a COVID-crazy world. Number three, our last one. I must live life with hope while I have it, no matter my circumstances. So I must live life with hope while I have it, no matter my circumstances. Again, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 4 to 6, and I bet you're going to see something here you've never probably seen before. Solomon says, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. And here we go. You're going to love this. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Bet you didn't even know that was in the Bible. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy already perish. They feel nothing, really. And forever they have no more to share in all that is done under the sun. So the word better there is really the idea of superior. And so when you think about, so it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion. So here's the idea. So the the dog is not your cuddly little dog you got at home. Like back then, the dogs are street dogs. They're mongrels. It's like the the idea this is the lowest of the low is dog. On the stratosphere, the highest would be a lion. So really what he's saying is, It's better to have life even if you're on the bottom of the totem pole. Let me give you the illustration maybe that will make sense to you. So it is, which is better? To be Steve Jobs who founded Apple, you know, iPhone famous, billionaire. uh, Everybody knows him around the world who is buried in an unmarked grave in California or to be Steve who's at Best Buy in Omaha, the Apple store, and is just selling an iPhone. We'd all go, well, I'd much rather be Steve at the Best Buy, right? Because he's what? He's alive. Steve Jobs, who was a Buddhist and buried in an unmarked grave, he's dead. That's really, really what that's saying here. Now, over the holidays, here's a Christmas movie that's kind of really, I think, illustrate this. I found out last week that a lot of people who are younger have never seen this movie, even though it plays on TV all the time. The movie is It's a Wonderful Life. Some of you seen it? I actually talked to somebody this weekend and said, no, I'll never watch it because it's in black and white, which I said, actually, there's a color version, but you should see that movie. Well, it's one of the favorite movies around our household around Christmas. And in a nutshell, George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart in the movie, is ready to jump off a bridge, take his own life. He wants it over. Things haven't gone well. He thinks, I'm going to commit suicide. And then Clarence, who's an angel, appears and jumps off the bridge into the water as to prevent that from happening. And actually, in a sense, he saves Jimmy Stewart from killing himself. And then, of course, Clarence the angel, what he does is he takes him to a time where, he, where really George Bailey can see what would life be like had he not ever lived. And so this is one of my favorite quotes. He says this, Clarence the Angel says, You see, George, you really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be to throw it all away? 
Now, the end of the movie, which you've got to see, and I don't know, I can never get through it without tearing up at the end of it. I mean, it's just one of those moments where everything comes together at the end. Every, it's a happy ending. You know, it looks like George Bailey's going to go to jail for something that he didn't do. Community comes in and bails him out, and everybody's happy, and Clarence the Angel gets his wings. A little bell goes off. We're all super happy. But here's what George Bailey says towards the end. He says, isn't it wonderful? I'm going to jail. So he's, and why? Because what? Better to be alive. And so George Bailey at that moment, like, I'll, I'll take life every time. And there's an appreciation and understanding it's better to have life. Because, here's the reason, it's the hope for the good and the better. I mean, this is the exact reason why suicide, one of the reasons it's not at all ever an option. Not to mention the fact you cannot glorify God if you're not here. So here's a, a bottom line thing I'll, you can jot down. I'll, I'll close with the story here. The preacher, which is Solomon, advises the reader, so that's you and I, to focus on an eternal God instead of temporary pleasure. There you go. There's your summary right there of Ecclesiastes. Now, here's my close. So that end of that season, we didn't win any games. And uh, we happened to play Palmer in sub-districts at the end. So we kind of knew it would be the last game. I mean, they beat us 84-12, to 12, right? Probably not going to beat this team. But here's the thing. The girls had improved. They had had a great season in spite of the scoreboard not showing that. So we lost by, I think it was 31, 32 points to Palmer in sub-districts. So you'd say, wow, that's a clobbering. Well, not as much as 84 to 12, right? So you could really see the improvement the girls had had, and they could feel that, hey, we've had the opportunity to, to glorify the Lord. And so some of the things I shared with them way back in the beginning after that first loss, I didn't pull out Ecclesiastes, which I probably should have, but over that time of that talk and that season, really these three convictions were things that were a part of who we were as a team. So the season's over. We have a little party for the girls, and Frank Rodriguez was my assistant coach at the time, and he went out and bought little knickknacks for each of the girls, and we had a kind of a closing little ceremony thing at one of the homes and invited the parents to come in, and the girls really, you know, had this, really, in their perspective was they were joyful, and they were crying and in tears that everything was over. Now, from the world's perspective, like that Greeley coach I talked to, that would make no sense to him, right? He would go, that was just a wasted time. He would not see how special that was and how, how really the girls had become better players and had become more like Christ. But one of the parents who was there came up to me afterwards and said this, and I won't tell you the school, but I will say this. He had two boys go to a school kind of in this area that's a really good public school with sports. Really good. And he said, you know, my two older boys went to the school, and there's not a day where they didn't come home after practice and complain about the coaches, complain about their teammates. And it was miserable. But you know what? They won a lot of games. I think one, I think one of them might have been all-conference or something. And he said, it's just misery. We sent our daughter here, who's, who was a freshman on that team, Nebraska Christian, and he said, I don't know what you did to these girls, but I see my daughter's in there, and she's crying because it's over. And you guys are terrible. You didn't win a game. 
But he said, I would much rather have what my daughter got than what my two sons had. What, what's this difference? And I just simply said, it's probably why you sent your daughter here, because it's a difference between a world perspective and a biblical perspective and convictions. And I said, no, we're not perfect. And I don't even said, I don't even know that every girl on the team is necessarily a believer. But we looked at things differently. And so the outcome was different. And so a lot of times when people will say, well, why would you send your kids to a place like this? I think it's because of those convictions. And I just shared three of them. In fact, if we'd have gone a little further in Ecclesiastes in that chapter, he also says that when it comes to life, you ought to do it all out, all in. Like, you ought to give it everything you got. Again, that goes along with the Colossians 3.23 that we teach at this, this school. Whatever you do, do you work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men? And so much of the world doesn't get that or understand that. So my hope today is as you kind of leave, and this is going to be a tough time. You're going to get home, and you're going to hear a lot of discontent, uh, and there should be for what's happened to the country, but yet there's hope. There's hope. And I hope you can take these three convictions with you. I want to pray. I know we don't have a lot of time. We've got a few questions. Maybe we'll have time for Let me just pray for you. Lord, thank you for this morning. I mean, I just think of how fortunate we are to have the gospel and even viewing life as we're in your hands. And if we can look at the end of life and look backwards and what we want life to be and not take it for granted, but just realize every day is like a gift that we can see things differently and then help us really to, to do everything our best, no matter the circumstances. So whether we lose or win on a scoreboard, the circumstances should not alter our attitude and behavior as believers who are trying to become more like Christ. Thank you, Lord, for this time. We just pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.